Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our Heavenly Father, we are very thankful uh, for Scripture that has lasted longer than any of us have been alive and will last beyond us, and it reveals who you are. And I pray that once again, you would open your word during this time and meet with us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as you heard from our scripture reading today, we are looking at the story of Jacob's dream from Genesis 28. And we'll get to that important story shortly, but there is a vital backstory that will make sense of what goes on in Genesis 28 that we need to understand. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us in very rapid speed the story of how God created the world and then set humans in it as noble and dignified rulers who completely blew it. And then from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 11, we see that humanity is really spiraling out of control. And this origin story, those first 11 chapters of the story of the world from Genesis culminate finally in chapter 11 when the people gather together and they decide to build a ziggurat. What is a ziggurat? Well, if you've ever been a middle school student or have a middle school student, we built a couple of these in our house. Maybe you have too. You may remember what a ziggurat is. It's a a pyramid-like tower that's in a square kind of shape like a pyramid and that with stairs around it that ascend along each side all the way up. And the Akkadians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, they all built these amazing structures. Why? so that they could reach the heavens and reach the gods. All the ancient peoples believe that the gods lived above, usually on some kind of cosmic mountain. So a ziggurat is like an artificial religious mountain that priests could go up and they would build a temple on top of these so that people could meet with God. And that's what the Tower of Babel was in chapter 11. It was an attempt by rebellious people to reach God and to make a name for themselves. But God comes down and he knows they're evil. He comes down and he disperses them and stops the building of this tower. Now, foreshadowing, that's going to prove to be very important for our story of Jacob, so hang with me. So then right after this, in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses one man, Abraham, to begin God's gracious plan to redeem and restore his broken and rebellious humanity. And there are lots of twists and and plot turns in the story of Abraham. Abraham does lots of stupid things. He also shows great faith in God. And then the line of Abraham, the first of the Jewish people, begins. Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. He becomes the heir. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, after a long time of struggling to have children, finally have twin boys. And the first one to come out of the womb, therefore the firstborn, was called Esau because he was very hairy. And the second boy to come out right after it was grasping on to Esau's heel. So they called him Jacob, which meant he grafts, he grafts or that he even cheats. So granted, not the best name to be given like a boy named Sue. Now these names will prove to be very important because what happens over the next several decades is that these two brothers turn out to be as opposite as could be. One's a jock and one is an artist. One Esau is a hunter and Isaac is a quiet indoor kind of guy. And as often happens, 
with parents, even though we try not to make it so. One parent tends to gravitate towards liking one of the kids. Another parent tends towards liking another, and that's exactly what happens. Genesis 25 tells us that Isaac especially loved Esau, while mom, Rebecca, especially loved Jacob. So this doesn't help with the sibling rivalry. And then, right before our story in Genesis 28, something really bad happens. Isaac is getting old, he's going blind, and he wants to set his affairs in order and make sure it's clear who will be running their prosperous sheep and goat farming industry when he's gone. And his plan is to give it to Esau. Makes sense. He's the outdoorsman, he's the firstborn son. But mom and son number two have other plans. Genesis 27 tells the story of how Rebekah and Jacob deceived Isaac and, and tricked Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau, which is basically the equivalent of legally signing everything over to the second son instead of the older. How do you think Esau felt about his deceptive younger brother? Here's what he posted on his private Instagram account. The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And he didn't just mean this metaphorically, he was planning to kill him. While moms have a way of figuring stuff out, so Rebecca hears that this is what's happening, so she makes a plan to save her son Jacob and to get him as fast out of town as she can. So she goes to her husband Isaac, and she complains and says, my son needs to marry a good Padamaram woman from back home, not these horrible Hittite women that are around here. So Isaac agrees, and they decide to send Jacob to go back to their kinsfolk way far away to find a wife from, from there. So go back to the old country, to Rebecca's family to find a good wife. And that is a perfect plan because the old country, the place where Abraham, the grandfather came from, Haran, is, is 500 miles away, a journey that will take a long time. And they're hoping that Esau's anger will cool by the time he comes back. So that's what they do. They pack up his bags quickly and Rebecca sends Jacob out to get out of Dodge all the way back to Haran, retracing the journey that their grandfather, his grandfather Abraham had taken 125 years earlier. And that's where our story picks up in Genesis 28. Look at it there. Verse 10. So Jacob left Beersheba and he went towards Haran and he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones from the place and he put it there at his head and he lay down in that place and he dreamed. And a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. So Jacob, for the first time in his life, is on his own. Instead of being part of a prosperous family, living in luxurious tents with nice wool and plenty of food, he's now a fleeing fugitive. He's by himself, sleeping in the wilderness outside of a foreign town called Luz, and he has a stone for a pillow. And God shows up. God shows up to him through a dream. And this vision of a stairway with its top reaching to heaven is meant to communicate the idea of a ziggurat. And notice that's a better translation than ladder, as some of the translations have. It's, it's clearly a stairway with God's angels coming up and down. This means this is a place of revelation. This is where God is going to show up. And so what happens? Look at verse 13. 
And the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land in which you're lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north and the south. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. So Jacob has a dream. In this situation, but it's not a dream full of guilt for all the things he's done or a dream of anxiety about the future, but it's a dream in which God shows up and speaks to him. And what God says is shocking and amazing. He reveals himself as the true, the same God who had earlier called and blessed Jacob's grandfather and father, Abraham, Abraham and Isaac. You see, thus far, Jacob has been a son of a family who worships Yahweh and whose family history is, has all kinds of stories about this God showing up and doing things for, for Abraham and for Isaac. But Jacob's the second born son. He's not the one favored by his father. And he, he's now lied and deceived his own father and his own brother. And yet God shows up and gives to Jacob the exact same great blessing that he had given to Abraham and Isaac before him, that God would give him the land and that he would have descendants that would spread throughout the whole world and that all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him and his descendants. This is another version, I hope you can hear, of exactly what God had said to Abraham all those years earlier. Remember, God told Abraham to look up at the stars and see all the stars and that, God, that his descendants would be like that. Well, this is the, a different metaphor, but the same idea, the spreading of his descendants all over the earth, which is intentionally a reversal of what happened at Babel. They gathered together at the Ziggurat of Babel so that they wouldn't be dispersed. But then when God comes and judges them, they're dispersed. And now God says, I am going to do a spreading throughout the world, but it's through my blessing of Jacob. And so here God repeats the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and makes them personal to Jacob. This is Jacob's get real moment where he sees God and connects with him personally. He's no longer just the God of his parents, but he is his own God. So what does Jacob do? We'll look at verse 16. So when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. And he poured oil on top of it and he named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. When Jacob, then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I've set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you gave me. So when Jacob wakes up from this vision, he is afraid, but not afraid in the kind of horror film kind of way, but this, uh, this fear that's, an, that's a combination of amazement and awe, realizing there's something bigger than himself there, what we can just call awe. And so he's amazed and he's filled with this awe, not only because of what God said, but because all of a sudden his eyes had been opened. What he thought was a no place in the wilderness. What he thought was just an insignificant area. He had a stone for a pillow. He's fleeing from what he knows, which is murderous thoughts, to a place he doesn't know. 
all of this that it just seems like nothing turns out to be infinitely more than he could have realized or dreamed. He thought he was alone in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, but this place his eyes are open to see actually turns out to be the house of God, the gate to heaven. So he calls it Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Be like, imagine if you were if you were hiking and you planned a camp and you're way out in the wilderness and, and it took longer than you thought. And so by the time you get to the to place where you hope to camp or where you finally have to camp, it's pitch dark. And so you, you set everything up and then you wake up the next morning and realize you thought you were just in the middle of the woods, but you were on the precipice of this amazing vista. Or if you prefer a more urban setting, you don't like mosquitoes, et cetera, like, it'd be like discovering that in some nondescript warehouse in a rundown industrial part of town, there's actually a stargate, a portal to Asgard. As Jacob says in verse 16, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. And so to mark this time, to mark this place where God became his God, where his eyes were opened, he builds a little memorial, something that humans have always done and continued to do, whether it's a Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial or 9-11, or the historical marker that is just up Rudy Lane here that explains that in 1792, Colonel Richard Taylor bought 175 acres, then moved across and raised his sons, one of whom, Zachary Taylor, went on to become the 12th president of the U.S. It's good and natural and helpful to to mark certain times and places as very significant as remembrances. And you could see how significant this is because of what Jacob says in his vow back to the Lord. He's not demanding of God something, but this is a, a, an expression of his new dedication to God. Look at verses 20 to 22 again. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. So the God of Abraham and Isaac is now Jacob's God as well. And you know what really blows me away about this story is to realize that unlike what you'd expect in a kind of religious story, Jacob was not a pilgrim who was seeking God. He wasn't even a prodigal who was returning to God. He wasn't like his grandfather Abraham who had been called by God and was following him to faithfulness. He was a deceiver. He was a grasper. He was fleeing. The whole reason he was in this situation is because he had lied and deceived his brother and his father, and yet God showed up. And notice that the story doesn't have the ziggurat stairs and Jacob has to climb them on some kind of adventure or journey, overcoming obstacles in various ways, various times. No, he majorly screwed up. He was running away and God came to him. God came down to earth and spoke directly to Jacob, blessing him. Jacob's former comfortable life had been completely shattered by his own deception, but still God shows up graciously for him. I think if we had to write a kind of one-line Netflix description of the movie of this story, it could be a number of things. A man running from home runs into God. A man afraid of his brothers learns to fear God. A man sees that when he thought he was nowhere, he was actually in the presence of God. Or a man who was a grasper of others' things becomes a giver to all. 
And there's so much beauty and goodness right there. But I think there's an even bigger and more central point to this story that I haven't yet pointed out. I didn't highlight verse 15, but I want to go back and look at it for a second. Verse 15, God says, look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then again, in Jacob's own vow, he says, if God will be with me. Here, friends, is the vein of gold, the cavern of diamonds in this story. God's promise to be with Jacob. God's promise to be with Jacob. And this is not just a a cliche on a Hobby Lobby wall hanging or even just an abstract idea of God's presence, but it is the very thing that Jacob and all of us need, God's presence with us. You see, at the Tower of Babel, the rebels were building a ziggurat, climbing toward heaven, but here God himself builds a staircase from heaven to earth so that he can be present with Jacob. He descends and is standing next to Jacob. Some translations, if you look at verse 13, will will translate as if God is standing at the top of the ladder, and that's certainly a possible reading. But with many other interpreters, I think a better translation is that God is standing beside Jacob on the ground, because that makes the most sense of what he's saying here, I will be with you. And even more significant than only saying that God is there with Jacob, which is very significant itself at Bethel, God says, you see it in verse 15, that God will be with Jacob wherever he goes. Jacob's not going to build a city right there and live at Bethel. He's on a journey. And now wherever he sleeps and wherever he works and wherever he plays will be a Bethel for him, a house of God, because God promises to go with him. And that reality, if you just kind of keep reading in Genesis all the way to the end, that reality becomes the theme of Jacob's life, that God was with him. 14 years later, after he's been deceived by his uncle, ends up with two wives and eventually a bunch of children, he looks back on this and says that even in all that time, God was with him. And then several decades later, if you look near the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob and his descendants have to make, he's an old man now, they have to make the long journey from the promised land down into Egypt because his son Joseph is now in charge and is rescuing them from famine. In the night, God appears to him again and says in Genesis 46, 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And then at the very end of his life, he looks back and says that God was with him as a faithful shepherd. And here is where our pivot to Advent is so clear and amazing. Because when you start to pull on that thread of the theme of God with us in the Old Testament, it becomes a rope. And then finally, when you get to the New Testament, it's tied to the leg of a lion, to the person of Jesus. You remember how the gospel of Matthew starts? We've been preaching through Matthew for long, and we'll get back to to finish it up in the spring. But do you remember how the book starts in the very first chapter? Matthew starts off with a genealogy, with a list of descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down through King David and beyond. And then we learn that Jesus' own birth, his conception, comes about not through the normal means, but through the, the gift of the Spirit in Mary's womb, And then Matthew explains that by quoting from Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And what will they call him? Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. So right here at the beginning of the New Testament, we are given a very strong word about who Jesus is. The first description of who Jesus is, he is named and defined as the presence of God becoming incarnate through the work of the Holy Spirit, the very thing we're celebrating at Christmas. But that idea of God's presence through Jesus doesn't end there in Matthew. It goes all throughout the, throughout the whole gospel, but then especially again at the very end in the text of what we call the Great Commission, you have this very interesting similar situation to Jacob's. You have a bunch of people who have screwed up. They have denied Jesus and fled. Now they are meeting Jesus on a mountain. They bow down and worship him, but they're also very hesitant. They're afraid because they have blown it. But then Jesus, instead of demanding them, graciously speaks and blesses them with these famous words. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the heaven-sent one, Jesus, commissions them on earth to go and to be a blessing to all nations, fulfilling the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice those very last words that match the description of Jesus at the beginning, I am with you always. It's not a mere coincidence, that, but this taps into this major biblical theme of God revealing himself as with us. And notice Jesus doesn't say God will be with you or God's angels will be with you but I will be with you always. The culminating moment of the theme of God's presence is in Jesus himself. Now, I need to bring this home more personally to us in a moment, but I I just want to also just briefly point your direction to the gospel of John. And you can ponder this more, and I'll just point this out to you. But right at the beginning of the gospel of John, when Jesus calls several disciples, including Nathaniel, do you remember what he says to Nathaniel? He says, truly, truly, or very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I'm not sure if you caught that reference, but since the very earliest days of the church and down through scholars today, everyone recognizes that Jesus is here clearly alluding to our story, to the story of Genesis 28. In fact, we have the exact same sequence of words in Greek, which shows that he's really quoting from Genesis 28. Now, there's more that we could explore here, but let me just say it as simply and as clearly as I can. John is saying that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is now Bethel. He is the house of God. He is the place where God dwells with humanity. He's the place where we can truly worship God and meet him. And as in Jacob's dream, the significance of the staircase for Jacob is so, so true for us that Jacob didn't have to ascend to God, but instead Jesus descends from heaven to be with his people. And the rest of John continues this theme talks about Jesus tabernacling among us, talks about the, there's a time coming now is when people will not worship in a certain place, but they'll worship by the spirit of Jesus and we could go on and on. The point is this, friends, that the New Testament over and over shows us that Jesus is not just another prophet. 
He's not just another teacher. He is, in fact, God's presence with us incarnate. He is the Bethel. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple in the wilderness. He's the temple where God's spirit dwells, where heaven kisses earth, where people can gather and meet God in grace. And he has graciously descended to us, even in the midst of our failures, deceit, and fleeing. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, that God has come to be present with us in Jesus. Now, that's all a fine bit of theologizing and showing how the Bible fits together, but I want to end today by bringing this home more personally, as I think God would want us. So this week, as we head into December and as we look towards Christmas, I want you to be thinking about the power of Gap, not the clothing store, but God's attentive presence. God's attentive presence. I said before that I think the key idea in Jacob's story and that we see in Jesus as well is that God promises to be with us. Promises to be with Jacob and then by extension, we as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith with us as well. And I want to bring this home to us more personally this season. Theologically, a lot of times we talk about God's omnipresence, meaning his everywhereness. But I want us to understand today that when we talk about God's omnipresence, that's not primarily a spatial or static notion. It's not just saying that God is everywhere, although that's true. But to say that God is omnipresent is a deeply relational idea. It means God's omnipresence means that God wills and acts to be present to every creature at every time. Let me say that again. God wills and acts to be present to every creature at every moment. Unlike other ancient gods, God, the God of the Bible is not contained or constrained by any temple. God did show up in special places, Bethel, as we just saw, the tabernacle, the temple. But we need to understand those physical spaces, they don't limit God's presence. They're just pointers to the fact that God is willing to meet with his people, but he is is able and willing. He's omnipresent. He attends to every creature at every moment. And God's promise of that goes beyond to just a place to meet him. But as he says to Jacob, wherever you go. Jacob's long and winding journey cannot outdistance God's safekeeping, nor can yours. No matter how much of a wreck you might have made of your life, you cannot outrun God's safekeeping. It is God's attentive presence that transforms our wandering in the world into a pilgrimage to God. And as I think about God's attentive presence, I think especially about how it relates to what it means to be lonely. Recently, I watched a Netflix show. Some of you may have seen as well. I've actually watched it twice because I watched it then with my wife as well. And that's The Queen's Gambit, which is amazing. Beautifully shot film or series. The story of an orphan here in Kentucky named Elizabeth Harmon who is profoundly alone. And she finds life in part through chess, which she turns out to be exceptionally gifted at, but she also makes a wreck of her life 
through drugs and excessive drinking. And it is a mesmerizing, beautifully shot story about, and a profound story about a person's journey really through loneliness and brokenness. At key points, she's helped by friends who show up despite her brokenness, despite her failures, despite her rudeness to them even, and they're present with her. This is my story too, in many ways. I would say that my childhood has, was deeply lonely, marked deeply by the death of my father when I was a toddler, and that really has continued to mark my life in profound ways. I've really come to see in <clears throat> recent years, really, that much of what I do consciously and subconsciously is to really combat a very profound sense of loneliness, a devastating sense of loneliness that I still feel. <clears throat> I've often felt very alone despite being around a lot of loving people. And, and I think part of the reason I've learned to be a performer in Enneagram 3 is that I believe that somehow if I get a lot of people around me to like me, I won't feel so lonely. But what changed for me over 30 years ago was that God met me in the midst of my profound loneliness and a messed up life. God came and found me. I wasn't looking for God, but he found me and showed up. And over the last 30 plus years of following Jesus in the midst of many good times and hard times, God has always been with me. Like Jacob, when I saw God for the first time, I dedicated myself to seeking him and he has never disappointed. He has never failed to be with me. And I know for many of you, that's your story too. And I know for others of you, this is what you long for. For someone more faithful than a parent or a friend, someone more powerful than anyone else to show up in life and actually attend to you. Friends, this is who God is for us in Jesus. Jesus is God's attentive presence that is everywhere with us. And as I think about Christmas time, even though it's a time of celebration and presents and beautiful lights and trees and peppermint mochas, for many people, the holidays make their loneliness even darker and more real. Especially this year, I think of widows. I know some of you are. I think of widowers. I think of people, a lot of people who have really messed up relationships for decades. And now maybe you're alone and you can't figure out how to fix those relationships. I think of COVID, obviously. People isolated like never before. People sick and dying alone in nursing homes. And even if you're surrounded by people, maybe you wouldn't say that you're lonely. It's still possible if you start paying attention to feel the profoundness of loneliness and depression. And maybe you, you try to act nicer, but you're, you're in a family gathering or in a group and you, you know you want to have better relationships. So you try to act nicer, but then your anxiety or insecurity gets the best of you. And maybe you're unpleasant and grouchy and then people pull back from you. And maybe that's been going on for years and you just feel this deep sense of loneliness. Well, friends fail relationships break, people die, and ultimately we must all cross the river of life to death alone. But God 
promises to be ever with us. Jesus provides by the Spirit that the Father and the Son have spent, sent a portable, unfailing house of God, the portable, unfailing, attentive presence that we all long for and which we're celebrating began through the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. So in the midst of your job, in the midst of your disappointing relationships, in the midst of your fear over your children's future and security, whatever it is, God's attentive presence is guaranteed by the presence of Jesus that we are celebrating. And as we think about the table, and I encourage you if you have communion materials to grab those, as we think about this thing that we love to celebrate, another symbol, another marker of what is true, we think about the night in which Jesus was with his companions. And the, the old sense of that is to break bread with someone, a companion. And he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he shared a cup of wine with them and said, this is my blood that is poured out so that we can be friends. And that while his presence is felt through the Spirit now. There is a time coming, he says, when I will drink this with you again in God's coming kingdom. So as we go into Christmas, remember God's presence with us even as we take communion now. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.